Welcome to this latest episode in the Herbert Smith Freehills FDI Friday podcast series, in which our foreign direct investment regulation experts are sharing their insights into FDI regimes around the globe. I'm Ruth Allen, a professional support lawyer in our competition regulation and trade practice in London, and I'm joined today by Matt Fitzgerald, managing partner of our Brisbane office, who specialises in M&A and regularly deals with foreign investment. We're going to be discussing insights for investors seeking to navigate the Australian FDI regime, generally referred to as the FERB regime, which stands for Foreign Investment Review Board. And we're also joined by Veronica Roberts, who heads up our global FDI group, who's going to chip in on a couple of points from a comparative angle. Now, the FERB regime is a well-established FDI regime, which has been updated and expanded in recent years, both in terms of the scope of the regime and increased penalties for non-compliance. So, Matt, could you start off with a brief description of how the FERB regime works, drawing out the key features that investors need to be aware of? Sure. Thank you, Ruth. So I think the first point is that a mandatory filing is required with FERB if an investment is either a notifiable action or a notifiable national security action. And so dealing first with notifiable actions, a notifiable action is where a foreign investor acquires a direct interest, that is an interest of 10% or more, in an Australian agribusiness, whether that's a legal entity or a business, a substantial interest, which is a 20% or more interest in an Australian company, or an interest in Australian land where certain monetary thresholds are met. Secondly, there is also a test that applies for foreign government investors, and that is where a foreign government investor acquires a direct interest in an Australian entity, and a nil threshold applies for foreign government investors in that circumstance. And then finally, a recent notifiable action which was introduced on the 1st of January 21 is a notifiable national security action, which is where a foreign person acquires a direct interest in a national security business uh, and a nil threshold applies there. And so when, when assessing how these tests apply, you need to work out whether the foreign investor is a foreign person. And that's based on establishing whether the foreign person holds an interest of 20% or more in a structure when investing in Australia. Investors looking at Australia can also make a voluntary filing in certain instances, and that's where they may take an action which is referred to as a significant action or a reviewable national security action. The Treasurer, who is the ultimate decision maker on all foreign investment decisions in Australia, may also look at reviewable national security actions which are not otherwise notified to FERB, and that is a power that the Treasurer has for a period of up to 10 years after the relevant action is taken. The, the last thing, just to briefly call out, Ruth, is the fact that the Treasurer also has what's called last resort powers, which is uh, a trump power that the Treasurer has to look at an investment on national security grounds, whether or not approval was needed for that action. And there are no time limits on the exercise of that power. And that's, I guess, indicative of the fact that national security is a very key focus area for the Treasurer and also the Foreign Investment Review Board, which administers foreign direct investment in Australia. 
Thanks, Matt. And thinking about the sectors covered by the FERB regime, is it only for investments made in certain sensitive sectors that investors need to be thinking about the potential application of this regime? Or are all sectors potentially within scope? Yeah, look, that's a good question, Ruth. The short answer is that all sectors are potentially within scope, um, albeit that there are some sectors that require more careful attention and scrutiny from FERB, which I think we'll come to separately. Thanks. Just, yes, thinking about that. So in terms of particular types of transactions that are more likely to attract scrutiny from FERB, either because of the particular sector being in the crosshairs or perhaps particular types of investor or investment associated with particular countries. What sort of trends are you seeing there at the moment? Yeah, good question. So I think consistent with global trends, we are seeing a laser focus on national security. And that is a broadly constructed concept. And what what that looks at in particular is critical infrastructure. So ports are a good example, telecommunications, banking, hospitals, defence and education. Other sectors that have always been closely focused on include agribusiness and media. And just jumping in there, Matt, that, that's quite a broad range of sectors, especially when, when you're looking at banking and education, when you're comparing that to sectors covered by other FDI regimes. And are there any proposals? I mean, we've always got countries thinking about what sector might be next. What do you think is next from an Australian perspective? Yeah, good question, Veronica. I think critical minerals are another area which are getting some attention. And I think there's a real focus on uh, critical minerals and I guess the ownership by foreign persons. So like agribusiness, I wouldn't be surprised if there was greater focus on critical minerals when foreign investors are looking at Australia. And that's an issue that I think needs to be carefully considered when you're structuring a transaction. And you might look, for example, at teaming up with a Australian joint venture partner on a transaction rather than seeking to do it 100% foreign investor if you're looking to streamline an approval process. That's interesting. So I, th- I think the other point probably to call out there is is the fact that there are specific focuses and stricter tests that apply to foreign government investors. And so the, the notion of foreign government investors is obviously a common and well understood term in global foreign investment. In Australia, it is actually quite broadly defined. Uh, It includes foreign government entities and their agencies or corporations, trustees and general partners in certain instances, and also agencies of foreign governments, which could include state-owned enterprises, public universities and public pension funds. And I guess the, the relevance there, of course, is that a lot of these institutions are prolific investors globally, and, and you, you only look at what the, the US and Canadian pension funds are doing um, globally with their investment portfolios. A lot of those types of entities are actually foreign government investors for Australian firm purposes. And the reason that's interesting and important is because they generally will require foreign investment review board approval in a lot of instances. Um, so there are stricter rules that apply for those types of investors. And I think 
Probably the last thing to call out is that, you know, as has been the case in a number of jurisdictions globally, there have been a lot of geopolitical tensions in recent times, and, and that has complicated foreign direct investment opportunities in Australia for a number of countries, including China and Russia. Thanks, Matt. And just picking up further on that sort of comparative angle that Veronica was talking about, if we think about how the FERB regime compares with other FDI regimes around the world, are there any particular unusual features to be aware of that you would call out in terms of having the potential to perhaps catch investors out, things we might not expect? Yeah, there's probably a couple that spring to mind. I think the first would be that internal restructures or reorganisations that are done by foreign companies with Australian subsidiaries can often trigger the need for a FERB approval. And so one one trick is to make sure that whenever you're looking at a restructure globally that may involve Australian subsidiaries, you should check that there isn't a need for a FERB approval in the same way that you'd always check the tax consequences of the restructure. So that's probably the first thing. I think the second thing is that there is often a need to get FERB approval if you're increasing your stake in a corporate. So a foreign investor may have a stake of 20% in a company, uh, which it might have sought FERB approval for. If it's increasing that stake, um, it may need to get FERB approval for that uh, company. And then the last thing, which is a little bit cumbersome and frustrating uh, for foreign investors, is the FERB filing fee regime. Now, this is a regime which requires that foreign investors have to pay an application fee when they're seeking a FERB approval. And, and that is typically driven by the value of the transaction. And unfortunately, the fees are actually quite high. So they can range from AUD 4,200 upwards of a million dollars AUD, which is quite a significant outflow uh, for a foreign investor. So something to be aware of, which, um, which isn't ideal, but unfortunately, it's part of the regime. Thanks, Matt. An important point there. Um, and I mentioned earlier that the sanctions for non-compliance with the FERB regime have been increased fairly recently. And I know there's been an increased focus on compliance more generally in line with the trends that we're seeing in other FDI regimes around the world. Could you explain in a bit more detail what sanctions can now apply for non-compliance under the FERB regime? Yes, absolutely. So historically, the Foreign Investment Review Board was seen very much as an enabler of foreign investment as opposed to a watchdog and regulator. And that's substantially changed in the last couple of years. And the, there is a broad range of uh, powers and penalties that can be applied, including civil penalties in the nature of fines, but also criminal offences. And so this is something that is a marked change from the history of foreign investment regulation in Australia. And I think it's in keeping with a stronger focus on national security. And so broadly speaking, if, if someone fails to seek an approval or fails to comply with conditions, they may be exposed to monetary penalties. Um, the other thing that is interesting is that there can ultimately be a divestment required of a relevant asset that was acquired in breach of foreign investment rules. And so it is very important for foreign investors to be aware of these rules and make sure that they're in full compliance. And in the same way that 
compliance procedures are set up for uh, tax compliance. We are advising clients to make sure they've set up compliance procedures for their FERB conditions to make sure that they're strictly adhering to those because the consequences can be quite serious. Thanks, Matt. We've talked in previous episodes about the lack of transparency and decision making that characterises many FDI regimes around the globe, especially when compared to for example, merger control review processes. How does FERV compare in terms of transparency of the decision-making process? Yeah, it's a good question. So FERB is, is a non-statutory advisory board that, that ultimately reviews every FERB application and then provides advice to the Treasurer of the Commonwealth Government. And ultimately, it is the Treasurer that makes the decisions, having taken advice from FERB. I, I don't think the decision-making process itself is transparent and nor are individual decisions made by FERB publicly released. So there is a lack of transparency, but having said that, there is a general understanding of how both FERB and the Treasurer look at most transactions because there's a lot of guidance released by FERB on how they look at decisions. There is also a lot of statistics that's released on a quarterly basis which explains in an anonymised way how decisions are made. And so whilst individual decisions are not particularly transparent other than to the parties involved, there is a reasonable amount of transparency about how FERB approach decisions. And I guess the final thing you would say is that it is very rare for FERB and the Treasurer to veto an investment decision. And so whilst there is a lack of transparency, uh, there isn't a huge portfolio of decisions made which involve rejections, which create uncertainty about how FERB will view a particular transaction. And so that, I think, helps alleviate some of the concerns that would otherwise arise from a regime that isn't completely transparent and publicly released on a decision-by-decision basis. Thanks, Matt. Just staying with that sort of big picture view then and thinking more about the um, statistics that you just mentioned, are there any other points that you'd call out in terms of those publicly available statistics which tell us a bit more about particular trends that we're seeing at the moment? Yeah, so I think uh, helpfully Treasury release a quarterly report and an annual report which looks to provide information on exactly how the, the, the regulator is looking at its decision making in terms of timelines, approvals, conditions and so forth. And so if we look at the most recent report, uh, FERB approved 272 investment proposals um, and the top three countries by value were the United Kingdom, Netherlands and uh, the US. And, and this probably continues a trend which we have seen over a number of years where the dominant investment into Australia from foreign countries is coming from the US and countries in Europe. There is also substantial investment from China, but that has declined over the last couple of years, probably influenced by geopolitical tensions. That's really interesting, Matt, that, that figure you gave. So just over 270 proposals approved in a, in a quarter. So I'm guessing that's rounding up very roughly to, say, around 
a thousand per year. And just thinking about how that compares with other regimes, we've got the UK coming in at nearly 900, so just behind. But then if you look at the other very long established FDI regime, like FERB, CFIUS is the other longest established FDI regime, they're, they're much lower, just under 450. So I, th- I think it looks like Australia is certainly one of the busiest regimes in the world, certainly in terms of the number of filings that are being received. Yes, and, and I think sadly that's a reflection on, on how many things require Foreign Investment Review Board approval. I, I suspect also that the dollar value in aggregate of our investment proposals would be dwarfed by what is being seen in, in the UK and, and the US. But but certainly it is consistent with for being very busy and, and, and sometimes that does create uh, frustrations from a processing perspective. Thanks, Matt. In terms of that processing perspective, and it does sound indeed like Ferber, um very busy, certainly got their hands full. I mean, a key issue from a practical perspective for investors who are seeking to navigate the regime is, of course, always going to be um, the potential impact on the deal timetable and how long it's actually taking Ferb to review and hopefully approve proposals. In your experience, how long is the Ferb review process usually taking at the moment? Yeah, look, it, it, it's interesting. So, the the FERB has a statutory review period of 30 days to make a decision, plus 10 days to notify. Uh, for more complicated applications, it will take longer than that. And so we are often involved largely in the more complicated decision processes. And so I would usually say that for those, it would be more like 60 to 90 days um, but for a garden variety application, it would typically take 30 to 60 days. And I guess the, the key thing probably to call out with your time periods for a FERB decision, a lot is dictated by whether there are other regulators involved. And so if there are, for example, competition issues that need to be worked through and a competition regulator involved in Australia, FERB would typically defer their decision process until the competition regulator had made its decision. And so the treasurer often likes to be the last regulator in Australia to make his or her decision. And so that can often delay things. And so obviously what this means is that you need to think carefully about your condition precedent, long stop date or sunset date on your deals when you have a FERB approval and also other regulatory approvals to work through so that you are adequately prepared from a timetabling perspective to not run up against a uh, a clock, which means the deal will be aborted. And that reminds me, Matt, of a point that we often end up dealing with on, on the cross-border in, international transactions that we work on together, because, of course, it can take some time, can't it, to get all of the merger control approvals and, and FDI and other approvals that you might need globally for for a cross-border transaction. And we've certainly come up more than once, haven't we, against the fact that actually the FERB approval only lasts for a year. So if in fact it has taken you some time to get your other clearances and you've got a very long gap between signing and completion, we've actually sometimes had to think about extending that FERB approval, haven't we? Yes. And it's it's something a little bit unusual about the Australian FERB regime, but the approval does only apply for a 12-month period. 
and and I suspect that that's probably because the legislation was framed primarily with Australian regulators in mind as opposed to offshore where it, it can be more complicated than that. So it is something to think very carefully about. And often what it means is that you may need to pre-agree in your sale documentation particular contractual regimes to deal with extension requests and the like so that you're covered from a deal certainty perspective. Thanks, both. Some really great practical advice there. Moving on to remedies. Where national security concerns are identified on a deal, what sort of remedies tend to be imposed by FERB? And can do you see that concerns usually can be dealt with via conditions, for example, or do you sometimes also see outright prohibitions? Yeah, so the FERB generally deal with national security issues via conditions rather than outright prohibitions. So whilst outright prohibitions are, of course, possible, and they do happen in a small number of cases, what is far more common is strict conditions being imposed. And so data security is a really common example. Uh, Data security is typically dealt with through strict conditions, uh, and the strict conditions generally seek to address the national security or other issues that FERB might have. There are limited examples of where prohibitions have occurred, and typically they would be when there is a very sensitive asset from a national security perspective um, involved, and there is often issues to be worked through in that regard as well. So I guess the point being that for most transactions, you would know up front whether there was likely to be an issue with a particular asset and FERB are reasonably good at outlining early whether they have serious concerns about a particular transaction. So rarely would it come as a surprise that a particular deal would have FERB execution issues and normally the parties are well advised to try and manage that up front to work out how to address that uh, in a particular way, which might involve offering upfront conditions to give FERB comfort on likely issues they would have. Thanks, Matt. And in terms of the ability of the parties to input into that remedies process, is it possible to engage in any sort of negotiations with FERB as to remedies or are remedies simply imposed by FERB without further discussion? So the short answer to that is it is definitely possible to engage proactively with FERB and seek to negotiate the conditions. Uh, depending on the nature of the asset and the conditions, that will often dictate how negotiable those conditions are. But certainly foreign investors can engage with FERB early to try and settle reasonable conditions. And, and probably the best way to do that is to include up front in your FERB application conditions that as a foreign investor you might be prepared to accept and that may help massage the condition process such that you do have good involvement in that process. Thanks Matt and um, you've mentioned quite a few practical points already but could I ask you to have a think about any other sort of top tips for investors in terms of getting the deal done and navigating the further review process as smoothly as possible? Yeah, so I probably have four or five tips to sort of to give. The first is that your engagement with FERB is very much dictated by how comprehensive your initial FERB application is. So 
try and be comprehensive, try and cover all the likely queries FERB will have up front because a thorough process is undertaken by FERB and if you put in a incomplete application, in the end it will take longer in the, the long run. Secondly, you do need to make sure your FERB filing fee is paid promptly. This is because the 30-day statutory period we talked about earlier doesn't commence until the foreign investor has paid their filing fee, and so it's critical that you pay it as soon as possible. I think the third thing is that FERB do run a ruler over all investments and will often involve consult agencies, and they will have typically a reasonable list of questions that will be asked of the foreign investor. It's very important that those questions are answered on a timely basis without delay, because if there is a meaningful delay in answering those questions, that will likely delay your decision time period. Another tip is to proactively engage with FERB on conditions for the reasons we talked about earlier. And then I guess the final point is it is often the case that an M&A deal will have more than one regulator involved in assessing a particular transaction, and that could involve other regulators in Australia, such as the Australian Competition and Consumer Commission, or it could involve the Australian Taxation Office. And so if that is the case, you need to make sure that there is a coordinated approach with other regulators so that all regulators are kept informed about the transaction. And that's typically done proactively in order to ensure that there are no surprises. Thanks. And, and finally, are there any topical issues which we haven't already covered, which investors need to have on their radar in terms of the FERB regime? So probably the, the, the first thing, just to briefly call out, and we have touched on this a little bit, but it's so important that I want to emphasise it, there's a laser focus on national security. So any business that touches on military, defence, data is going to get some close scrutiny. So just be aware of that and, and be prepared for that. I think the second point is that there is a real compliance focus and a data collection focus from FERB, and that's been as a result of the expansion of their powers and various regimes they can look to employ to get more information. And, and this has most recently manifested in a register of foreign ownership of Australian assets, which is essentially a database which keeps a centralised register of interests of foreign investors in land, agricultural businesses and also water. And so... I guess it's just an example of the regulator taking an increasingly data-based focus to all foreign investment matters, so something to be aware of. Thanks, Matt and Veronica. It's been really great sharing your insights into the operation of the FERB regime today. Certainly lots to think about, and it's clearly a regime which is continually evolving. I'm afraid that's all we've got time for today, but thanks to our listeners for joining us. And please do let us know if you have any feedback on this episode or indeed any suggestions for areas for us to cover in future episodes of FDI Friday. This week, I've also been talking to Joe Falcone and James Robinson from our New York office about the CFIUS regime in the US. And that episode is now also live on our website alongside this one. Looking ahead to next Friday, we'll be hearing from our experts in France and also in Germany. We do hope you can join us then.